chapter 2 together. Uh, if you didn't bring your Bible and you want to follow along in one of the pew Bibles that is in front of you, in the rack in front of you, it's page 1014. And the text that I'm going to be preaching on for us today is also printed in your bulletins. Uh, if you have been with us for the past couple of Sundays, or even if you haven't, in the last two sections of this letter that Peter has been writing to the exiles in, uh, scattered throughout Turkey, we have seen him enjoin upon this community of exiles two primary guides for their communal life, for their communal ethos, for their communal ecosystem. And those two primary things that he has enjoined upon them are number one, that you should love one another from a pure heart and earnestly. And number two, and this is where we were last week, that we should continue as the people of God, corporately and individually, to struggle for desires that are good, that we should long after good things, that we shouldn't be controlled by the old desires that we used to have, but instead, having tasted and seen that the Lord is good, we should hunger after pure spiritual milk. Now, as this letter moves along and before it goes into instructions that Peter is going to give to his church about how to live in this world, and I've warned you about these instructions coming up in this letter, but before he gives these instructions to us, Peter here desires for the people of God to be able to shore us up in our identity in and in our status because the kind of things that he's going to tell us with respect to living in the world are going to be the kind of things against which our flesh naturally recoils and I've warned you of this before so that you can see it coming Peter is going to give us instructions about subjection about submission about being humble about humility about doing good to people who are not doing good to you. He's going to talk to us and give us instructions about enduring suffering, enduring ill treatment that comes from other people. But before he does that, and so that makes sense to us, he wants to give us who you are as the people of God. What's your status? You have to understand that before I tell you how you are to live in this difficult world. And that's what we've got before us today and in our section next week as well. I'm going to read for us now this portion of the living and abiding Word of God. Give full attention to it uh, for the sake of just the context. I'll read verses 1 through 3 as well, but our, our uh, focus today is on verses 4 through 8. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, 
to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Lord, we pray that you would help us. Uh, we pray that you would help us to have insight into this portion of your word. Help me to be able to preach it clearly this morning. And we pray that you would help all of us to hear it, preacher included. And we pray that you'd help us to live underneath of it as a community of believers. Jesus, we ask this for your sake and in your name. Amen. Uh, you are going to make fun of me for the illustration this morning. I don't want you to make too much fun of me yet. After the service, after the sermon, you can make fun of me. It's a tired, it's an old illustration. The other day I told you I couldn't think of an illustration that would go well with the sermon. Actually, today I thought of a number of them that would go really well, and I deliberately chose this one because it's so classic and so corny that I thought it would help us to remember and kind of have a sense of what is going on in the text today. So listen now, make fun of me later. The illustration is from Karate Kid. Okay, Karate Kid, this is one of the most famous scenes uh, in the movie, and if you never saw Karate Kid, that's a strange thing, but if you've never seen it, uh, you can just YouTube this particular scene that I'm referring to right now, and you can then make sense of what I'm about to say. So in the movie, Daniel has gone to Mr. Miyagi, he's interacted with Mr. Miyagi, and Mr. Miyagi has agreed that he will be, in fact, his uh, teacher in karate, and uh, Daniel shows up for the first day of lessons in karate, and all of you know the scene, right? All of you know exactly what takes place there. So Daniel is instructed. I, I actually can't remember if this is in one day or it's over the course of a couple of days. But in any case, you know what Daniel is instructed to do. In the first place, he's instructed uh, to paint the fence. And when he paints the fence, he's supposed to go up and down. And then he has to paint the house and go side to side. And then he has to wash and wax the cars. And he has to do wax on. He has to do wax off. And then he has to... Uh, sand the floors, right? So sand the floors and you have to go this way with sanding and then this way with sanding. And as this, this, this part comes to its conclusion, Daniel, of course, comes to him and he's complaining and he's saying to him, oh, listen, I thought you were going to teach me karate. I thought you were going to teach me fighting, how to kick, how to defend myself, etc." And instead, all that I'm getting is this and all that I'm doing is, in fact, being your slave. And Mr. Miyagi then turns to him and says to him, not everything is as it seems. Not everything is as it seems. And then, of course, if you've seen the movie, you know what happens next. We go into the scene where he tells him, he shows the application of all of those things to karate, right? It's the aha moment, uh, the part where you go, whoa, okay, that's really great how all of these things now apply to karate itself. Peter, as I have said, is about to give instructions that are going to read a lot like paint the fence 
and wax the cars and, and uh, sand the floor. But they're tougher than that. The things he's going to say are much tougher than that. That's just a movie, right? Peter knows that what he is about to give in terms of instructions are going to be for people a tough pill to swallow. They're going to be hard to do. And he anticipates the human reaction to the kind of things he's going to command of the people. The human reaction is, what's the point of these things that you are saying? Who wants to sign up for this? Am I just some kind of a slave in this world that you want me to submit to human institutions? That you want me to submit to masters who treat me poorly and don't reward the good work that I do as a slave? Do you want me just to submit to a husband who is not a believer? Do you want me to just submit to ill treatment from the hands of people around, who are around me? Why would you want me to do that? It doesn't make any sense at all. There's no honor in that. To do such things is, in fact, to do that which is shameful. You're asking me as a believer to do that which is shameful, to receive shame from others. That would be the human gut reaction to it. Shameful. And so what Peter does before he goes into those instructions is he front loads the aha moment. Right, because life isn't a movie, and a movie that really works to hold things off. Life is no movie, and these things aren't easy, and the pain is going to be deep, and the suffering is going to be deep that Peter's going to be talking about. And so in advance of what he says, he says, i got to show you the big picture. I have to show you what's going on here so that what I'm telling you is actually going to make some Sense. All right, now let's come to the text that we've got today, specifically verses 4 through 8. Uh, the illustration that pervades our text, of course, as you've heard it and read it yourselves, is that of a construction project that's going on here. A building project is the, the illustration that Peter is using to communicate this truth to us. And in, in point of fact, in our text today, there's not one building project that is going on. There are, in fact, two building projects that are described in our text, although some of the aspects of those building projects are simply alluded to and simply assumed by talking about the other building projects. So in these building projects, there's builders, there's materials, and they each have a plan, a goal that is associated with them. One project is being built by God. One project being built by God, the other project is being built by the builders, the builders that we see in verse 7. So in verse 7, you see that quote there, the stone that the builders rejected. Uh, so one project being built by God, the other project being built by the builders. And using a little bit of uh, church history and the way the church has understood this throughout the ages, especially thanks to Augustine, is we can see, describe these two projects, these two building projects, as on the one hand, the city of God, and on the other hand, the city of man. These are the two building projects, the city of God and the city of man. Obviously, God is building the city of God. And if we were to think about this in an Old Testament sense, let's have that in mind first of all, because all of these passages uh, that are in your text are drawn from the Old Testament, to show us this. If we were to think about what's the city of God in the Old Testament, 
Well, then we have an answer to that, right? Jerusalem, uh, a.k.a. Zion, is the city of God in the Old Covenant. And in particular, when you talk about a building project within Jerusalem, you can talk, as Scripture does, about the walls of Jerusalem, and you can talk about the temple. You can talk about the house of the Lord that is within Jerusalem, where it says there in verse 6, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone. So that passage that Jack read for us earlier from 28 talks about the rulers in Jerusalem. And now it says the stone has been laid in Zion, there in Jerusalem. So the city of God, and if we want to trace that in an Old Testament sense, you're talking about Zion or Jerusalem, the walls and the temple. Whereas the city of man, we could look at a number of places in the Old Testament, but I've chosen two this morning that I think help us to see and understand the contrast between these two cities. And the two building projects that I want to highlight for us that I think help us to understand the text are, first of all, the Tower of Babel. Okay, so the Tower of Babel, early in the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 11, is in fact a building project. And as we'll see, as I quote from Genesis 11 in just a moment, it is a building project that man has set out to do and set out to accomplish. And then the second city that we would see that is the, uh, the prime example of the city of man in the Old Testament is Babylon. Okay, so the Tower of Babel and Babylon. These are the two cities that represent the city of man in the Old Testament. So think about this with me here for a moment. In Genesis chapter 11, Genesis chapter 11, we read about the Tower of Babel. It is, of course, after the fall, and all of the people on the face of the earth spoke the same language, and they were gathered together in the same place. And what we read in Scripture is this. They say, let us build ourselves a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered over the face of the earth. So it's a, it's a man-inspired building project. Let's get it up to heaven. Let's get it as high as we can get. Let's make our name as great as we can make it so that we won't be scattered. Mind you, just in terms of this, Peter is writing to scattered exiles. Okay, so there's a little play going on here. Peter's writing to scattered exiles. The Tower of Babel was so that we're not scattered over the face of the earth, so that we have a place where we can be together. But you can see in that description that that's all about human pride. It's all about making a name for ourselves. It's not about making a name for God. It's about making a name for ourselves. Now, go forward in the Bible to the book of Daniel. And just by way of quick context, Daniel was a prophet uh, of, of the people of God who, with many others, was carried off into captivity into uh, Babylon in the 600s. And Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon who has conquered Jerusalem, carried off the people, and who is king over this great city that he has built. And here's what Nebuchadnezzar says in Daniel chapter 4. Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. The city of man. The city of man is that which is built 
built for the glory of my majesty. It shows how great I am, how great we are as mankind. Look at the things we can do. Now, I want you to see the city of God, but it's harder to see because it doesn't look as shiny as Babel or Babylon. In the midst of this, in the wings of both of those stories, off stage in both of those stories. So Genesis 11 is the story of the Tower of Babel. Off stage is Genesis 12, which is Abraham. Abraham will be called by God to come out of his country, out of his land, out of his city, to travel to the land that God has promised to give him. But in fact, he will never settle well in that land. In fact, Abraham will be a sojourner. He will be a man who dwells in tents throughout the course of his life. And now speeding through scripture to get to Hebrews chapter 11, why did Abraham never have a city? Why? Hebrews 11, because he was looking for a city whose designer and builder is God. See the contrast? In Genesis chapter 11, you've got a city that's built by man. Let's build this city. Let's build this tower as high as we can possibly do it. Whereas, no, Abraham's looking for a different city whose builder is God. Now, in the background, of course, in the book of Daniel to Nebuchadnezzar is Daniel himself, who is in exile, and he's waiting and hoping for a return to a city, the city of God that's now laying in ruins. The foundations of it have all been turned over, but he's still hoping for a return back to that place. So what Peter is doing here, what, what Peter is doing for his audience, who remember is primarily Gentile, Jewish some, but not primarily Jewish, but he's continuing to envelop them and wrap them and help them to see their lives, their exilic experience as believers within the context of this grand and great building plan that God has been doing throughout history. From the very earliest pages of Scripture, and while we're not in Revelation right now, if you know the book of Revelation, we'll end with this same building plan. That's where we'll end Scripture as well, with the prominence and the preeminence of the city of God being raised up. So in our text, look at it with it at specifically now as we look specifically and concretely at the text. Peter says, as you come to him, Okay, that's where it starts. As you come to him, who is him? Him is Christ. As you come to Christ. I don't have time to develop this for us uh, in depth in any way right now. But you'll recall that the verse that precedes this, which I've read for us, is the verse that says, having tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And I talked last week about the fact that that comes from Psalm 34. Comes from Psalm 34, and so does this phrase right here as you come to him. Because in Psalm 34, it's a psalmist who is desperate, who is on the run, who comes to the Lord. As you have come to him, and appreciate here what Peter is saying to these exiles, what Peter is saying to them is, not only have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good, but you have and you are coming to him. And the idea in Psalm 34 is that as you, as the people of God, come to him, the Lord draws near to you. The Lord surrounds his people. And Peter is saying, you haven't gone out, exiles, 
You've come. See the difference? An exile feels like I've gone out from a place where I was at home. Peter's saying, no, no, no. You haven't gone. You've come. You've come to him as you come to him. As you come to him who is, in fact, the living stone, the Lord Jesus Christ. And with this living stone, of course, the metaphor begins in earnest that pervades the passage. It's a common metaphor found in the Old Testament in any number of passages. I've already read two this morning, the call to worship, Psalm 118, talked about that cornerstone being laid. The Isaiah 28 passage uh, that we read as the Old Testament reading also speaks of the same idea of this stone. Jesus uses it as a way to identify himself on several occasions. Paul, on the front of your bulletin, I'll quote that towards the end of the sermon in Ephesians, identifies Jesus as that cornerstone as well. Peter, also on the front of your bulletin in Acts chapter 4, when he's preaching, says it this way, and this is just to make it completely clear, there's no ambiguity here. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Okay, so there's no, there's no lack of clarity here in Scripture about the fact that Jesus Christ is this stone. Jesus, who said when he was looking at the temple in Jerusalem, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it again. And they looked at him and they said, wait, what are you talking about? It took 46 years to build this temple. What are you talking about that you'll raise it up in three days? Well, now we're going to combine ideas. Jesus hasn't said, or Peter hasn't said, Jesus is the stone. Peter has said, Jesus is the living stone. It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ that makes him the living stone, the one that has been laid in Zion. Now, of course, Peter has already used this word living a couple of times for us. We saw that we began this with a living hope that we've been born again into a living hope. We've seen at the end of chapter 1 that we have the living and abiding word of God, and now he applies it to the stone as well. We have this living stone that is here. But we get two different perspectives on this living stone. So you've got, you've got a stone sitting there, and you've got two sets of builders who look at that stone and see that stone from a very different perspective. So the builders of the city of man, they took a look at that stone, and they say, you know what? That stone isn't going to fit. It's a misshapen stone. It's not a true stone. It's an ugly stone. It's a stone that we think is actually going to be useless. And if you've ever done any stone work, none of us, I don't think, have ever set stones in place for the foundation of a building. But if you've ever done any stone work, you've looked at stones and you look at them carefully to try and find out which stone is the one that needs to go in this place. They look at it, they see it, and they reject it. Right? They reject it. That's what it says in verse 4. Rejected by men. The living stone was rejected by men. And then when you go down to verse 7, the stone that the builders rejected. This is why I had us sing the second hymn today. Stricken, smitten, and afflicted. See him dying on the tree. Oh my, uh, tis, the, tis the Christ by man rejected, 
Yes, my soul, tis he, tis he. He was rejected. But there's another perspective on this stone. And the other perspective of this stone is from the builder of the city of God, which is to say from God himself, who looks at that same stone that's been rejected by men and looks at that stone and says, perfect. Perfect in every way. I choose that stone, that precious stone. Now, just like living, these are words that Peter has already used in his letter thus far, just to, to help you to see the connections that he's making. Chosen, that stone is right, chosen and precious. We see it in a couple of the places. In the sight of God, chosen and precious in verse 4. And then as that is quoted then in the Isaiah passage, a cornerstone, chosen and precious once again in verse 6. So chosen, chosen is the same word that is used to describe the people in the very beginning of the letter. When we read in the beginning of the letter, elect exiles. The elect exiles, or when we read just down in verse 9, you are a chosen race. That's the same word that is there as well. The chosen stone. We are elect exiles chosen because of the stone that was chosen as well in Christ. And precious is another word that we have seen. In our ESV Bibles, precious is used to describe your faith. Your faith is precious. We saw it likewise used to describe the blood of Christ, the precious blood of Christ, without, like a lamb without blemish or spot. But what I want us to see with respect, especially to the word precious in our text this morning, is that precious is actually a word that we could translate as honor. Uh, all of these words are relating to honor, and, and honor comes up in our text specifically here. And so the idea would be here that you are chosen and honored, that that stone that has been laid is chosen and an honored stone. This passage is about actually shame and honor. They can look at the things that they're experiencing life as shameful, and Peter's trying to instruct them in that. Jesus, in fact, is chosen and honored. Rejection, however, is shameful. And being chosen is an honorable thing. So here's the, the metaphor, the way this metaphor works. It's a picture of the builders kind of dismissing this stone that has come into the world, of pushing it aside, perhaps prying it, perhaps rolling it down the hill. You know, it's, it's, it's too big of a stone to actually toss it aside. So prying it aside and God saying, Thank you very much for all of your effort in rejecting that stone that I provided for you. That's exactly what I wanted you to do. That's exactly what you are destined to do. And you've put it in exactly the place where I am going to build my building, where I'm going to build my house, my temple. Because, of course, the place where we see the rejection in full force is the cross. It's the cross where we see that. And what we see is that all of these schemes and plans of men led up to the cross, led up to getting this, cur this Savior on this cursed tree. And that's exactly where God wanted him. That's exactly where God wanted him to be. They think they're thwarting the plans of God. 
and they're fulfilling the plans of God. Uh, some uh, authors helped me to see this as well. When we think about the cross of Jesus Christ, it is natural, and this is not, it, this is present in Scripture as well, it is natural for us perhaps to think of the pain that Jesus endured on the cross. But the significance of the cross in terms of how it was viewed at the time was not so much the fact that it was painful, though we're not discounting that in any way, but it's the fact that the cross was shameful. Not painful, but shameful. And that's what the gospel writers emphasize when they talk about Jesus being spit upon, when they talk about him being mocked, when they talk about him being stripped and then dressed up in clothes and having those clothes taken off of him. Again, insults being hurled at him as he moves his way to the cross and then hung on the cross naked. It's a shameful, shameful death that he was enduring. They were, in fact, shaming him, and they are doing exactly what God had planned. Because the ones to whom the shame ought to come are those of us, all of us, who are, in fact, guilty. But God appointed it. God laid the stone, the living stone, in Zion so that that living stone would absorb on our behalf the rejection that rightly should have belonged to us. Why? Because God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God took a cross. God took the one who was hanging on a cross in the most shameful death that you could possibly have and said, that's the chosen and precious stone. Right there, up on the cross, that's the one who is chosen and precious so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. See, that's, that's the way God is setting up his structure. No boasting. No boasting. Contrast that with what we see at Babel. Contrast it with what we see in Nebuchadnezzar at Babylon. And so in the middle of the human kingdoms of this world, the many cities of man, God lays a stone in place for a new kingdom, for a new city, but it's a living stone. And so what Peter is saying to them is that you may be on the outskirts of Turkey. You may feel like you're far flung and you are scattered. You may feel like you're a long way from the stone that was laid in Zion. But Peter says, you're not as far as you think. It's, it's Jesus who is the living stone. And when you come to him, which is where we started this text, as you come to him, in fact, what happens is you come to Zion. Or if you prefer, Zion comes to you. And as a result, you become where you are in this world, living stones. As you're built upon the living stone, you yourselves become living stones built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices. All of these things that Peter is about to say in your life, these are the things that you are offering up unto God, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. And thus, to these scattered exiles, 
especially living in the far places of scattered Turkey, it's not far. The cornerstone is in your midst. You are the spiritual house. The church is on the move, and it's organically growing right in the middle of the city of man. And there should be no surprise to Peter's audience, nor to us, that the city of man doesn't like that. It doesn't like the city of God growing up in its midst. its midst. Jesus warned us of this. Jesus said to us, if they hated me, if they've rejected me, they're going to hate you, they're going to reject you as well. But not everything is as it seems. Not everything is as it seems. The builders of this world look like they're making all the things that are shiny and powerful and big and strong. But the promise of the text is they will stumble. They will stumble. Have you ever worked with stones? Ever tried to build a stone wall? Let me tell you what happens when you're building a stone wall and you get a stone that you don't like that you reject. So you get a stone, you don't like it, you reject it, you go, that's not going to work, you put it aside. You know what you do? You build a little bit, you start to step back and look at what you've built, and you end up right on that stone. You stumble right over the stone that you rejected because you've thrown it behind you, you start backing up to look at, hey, this is a great city, this is a great wall that I've just built. And boom, you're over. And that's what the picture is, that's what's going on here, this is what's being described. God is going to shame the wise, he is going to humble the proud, like, like the Babel builders. You think you're high and mighty? You think you got that city that's going up to heaven? Boom, you're scattered. You can't talk the same language to one another, you're scattered over the face of the earth. Nebuchadnezzar, you think you, made, you did well with this city? You think, you think you made this great, huh? Craziness, craziness comes after that. The humbling comes immediately after that. The, the personal building project of the city of men is doomed to fail. And it is doomed to fail because they will not listen to the word of God. They will not obey the word. They will not believe the word of God as they were destined to do. The end of verse 8 they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. You set the word in front of you as the foundation you can see. You can be integrated into it. You throw the word aside and put it behind you and you will stumble over it. You will stumble over that word. Whereas, and this is what Peter is saying, this is, this is the things are not as they seem. Peter saying, whereas those who believe, despite what things look like, Despite what you experience in this world, despite the rejection that you experience in this world, despite the fact that you're going to be doing a number of things that in your life you go, the kingdom of God is like this? The kingdom of God has this kind of humility, this kind of serving attached to it? Well, despite that, what we're told is verse 6, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. In fact, verse 7, the honor is for you who believe. At the end of the day, 
The things that look great right now, the things that are getting honor in this world right now are the things that will be shamed, and the things that look shameful in this world right now are the things of God that will be honored because you're being laid on the foundation that is Christ, the cornerstone, the living stone. So what then is our status? What is our identity? By faith, according to the mercy of God, in front of your bulletin, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God by the Spirit. Now, that's Paul finishing up the story in Ephesians. But I want you to hear it from an Old Testament perspective. So remember, we had a picture of Daniel. Daniel looking and longing for Jerusalem. How do we get back to Jerusalem? The people of God finally get back to Jerusalem. And the people of God build the wall around Jerusalem under Nehemiah. And then the temple, the house of the Lord, is reconstructed as well. And Haggai is talking to the people and he says, listen, this temple that has been reconstructed in this place, does it not seem to you to be a little thing? A little thing compared to what used to be here, what the temple used to be like? He says, I, I tell you something. I tell you something, the glory of this latter house will be greater than the former. What house is he talking about? What building is he talking about? Listen from Haggai chapter 2. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord. Where's the greater house? And the answer is you. The answer is you. This is the greater house, not this. I like it. It's a beautiful place. But this is the house of the greater glory, the dwelling place of God by His Spirit, by whom, in whom, we offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God, only in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are the fulfillment, as was the church scattered to whom Peter was writing as well. We are the spiritual house of God being built by Him. Lord, we thank You for that. We pray that you would help us not to be in any way building for ourselves, building names for ourselves, building things for our own sakes, but instead we would love the fact that we are being built by you on the foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would help us to see that and to understand the promises that are associated with it, that though we may be shamed in this world, shamefully treated in this world, that the honor belongs to those who believe in you. Help us to have that kind of courage, that kind of confidence, that kind of hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's sing together in response.